When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. My name is Adams, Cindy Adams, the New York Post columnist. I'm on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And today is Mother's Day. Be patient with me if you've heard me do this before. As a mother lover, I reprise versions of this same thought yearly. My fuzzy head makes it seem like the only way I can bring my mom back to me. I was, I was nothing. I was not pretty as a child, not accomplished. I was constantly sickly. I reached age two when my mom divorced my dentist father. She disliked everything about him, including his teeth. We had nothing. We had no money, and we came from no money. Grandparents migrated from Russia. Here on the Lower East Side, my grandma cleaned stoops, and she took in borders. Her husband, Grandpa, was a bad tailor. He never made a cent. And en route to the New World, my mother was born in Liverpool, England. Each generation improved. Mom was beautiful, English perfect. She became an executive secretary, a single parent. She later remarried an insurance man, and he became my real father. We loved one another. I was 14. I was zero. Bad hair, bad skin, chubby, anemic. She organized the only time then ever at age 14 for me to meet my real father. He never contributed $5 to my upkeep. He had zero interest in me, and it was possible even that shrunk when he saw me because I wasn't anything attractive. Everything I had, all I had was my mother. I needed doctors, medication, nursing, absence from school, My mother, who worked for a living, was there with me. Career, no career, work, no work. Jessica, my mother, was always there for me. Now, a lifetime later, the name of each of my pets always begins with J. Mom began improving me. I was 15, she fixed my nose. She put me on a diet. She improved my skin. She redid my hairline. She fed my anemia, fearsoul tablets, which now, a lifetime later, I still take. She bought my first party dress, my only party dress. The hem was a fake fur shred. My grandma, who didn't know from fancy, washed the thing, ruined it, and I cried for a month. My mom sent me to speech and acting school. 
She was determined I was going to become a little something. So I learned to walk, talk, speak. I improved. That was then. This is now. My mother is gone. For years she lay unspeaking, unfocused, in a hospital bed inside the country home I provided for her. She didn't even know who I was, but I knew who she was. I knew somewhere inside that shell was the stunning, bright, sassy, verbal, vibrant, killer lady who had been my all, the core of my being. That's why I repeat this, this every Mother's Day. What I wanted at that time when my mother was in a hospital bed, I wanted to crawl into that bed with her. That bed with the iron prison bars. I could only stroke that small head. So I put a tiny stuffed teddy bear into her curled hand so she could touch something soft. I remember that gorgeous head when it was full of information, when it was big and strong and knowledgeable, when that head featured the powerful mane of thick red hair. It seemed tiny now, the hair sparse, white, thin, shiny. Inside was lost the ability to know my name. She didn't even know who I was. I would give up everything now to give my mother a gentle, slow-moving hug today, one that wouldn't frighten her or be returned or even understood. I've said before, and I do this every Mother's Day, I reprise my feelings for her. But I say again, for whatever or however, there sometimes exists a wide gap between a mother and a child. You who are out there, who knows the reasons why you are not together? It is not for me to sit in judgment. As I write this, my words are flooded with tears. It's just that if it is within your soul, call. Tell your mother you love her. I wish I could. I can't anymore. So, since you can't listen to just me, I'm going to go on and tell you about some other things. I talked about my mother, and so now there is coming a movie called About My Father. It is about funny man Sebastian Maniscalco's hairdresser father. Their friend, Robert De Niro, plays him. De Niro said, Look, I was in The Irishman with Sebastian. This is a personal element about his life. They were a classy Italian family, a cultural clash with waspy, stiff in-laws. 
His actual father was my model. I always want a real element in anyone I play, and we met in Oklahoma while shooting a movie. Okay, so what is this movie about? He said, actors that I admired included Gregory Peck and James Dean, who only did three movies, but was excellent. I never worked with Montgomery Clift. Brando was always great. I knew personally that I worked with terrific Robert Mitchum twice. But this movie you have to see. It's about a wonderful father. I know it's Mother's Day, but coming up will be Father's Day. And in this movie is Kim Cattrall. It opens May 26th, so go. Take your father. Maybe he'll even do your hair. Okay, I'm going on to another thing. We know about the writer's strike. Writers submit a story. This is a story about such a story. Writer admits, submits a story. It then becomes stolen. The denying studio people say, we had nothing to do with it. We don't know about a previous story like it. Sue us if you think we did anything. The writer who is usually broke fades away. He has no money. Like Hollywood's casting couch before the Me Too taboo, work was stolen. It's not a once upon a time story. A writer by the name of Jack Piuggi of Flip, F-L-I-P-P Productions, has claimed that 20 hours of legally admissible audio-video footage has been stolen from him. His lawyer, who has been in charge of many celebrities, has now filed already a David versus Goliath lawsuit in United States Supreme Court, District Court, rather. It's the Southern District of New York. He alleges that this insta-famous is the name of the movie that has osmosed into cable shows on HBO called Fake Famous and F-Boy Island. He's funneling ideas they have heard. He has independent contractors filing 1099s remaining work for hires not house employees. Thus, the studios say, they're work for hires. We were unaware of this person's actions. They don't work for the company. We don't know who they are or how they got this. We were never informed. This is what we call a parallel idea. That is the term for a supposed coincidence that more than one person has that same idea and thus cannot be accused of theft. What the writers are saying is, it is three-card Monty. In other words, he says, the man who filed this suit, I have 26 recorded hours that prove these ideas were mine. 
I even suggested actors. I suggested a later cast member as the star of one of these shows, and this person, whose name is Garrett Morosky, actually told me, we know they stole your show. I recorded that, too. Okay, I have now given you a series of unhappy things, but that's because I'm feeling sort of down, and it's Mother's Day. But I loved my mother. I loved WABC. I loved talking to you. I loved the people I had on the air today. And I'm going to be back in a minute right after a station break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. So, Matthew Hush. He is a very high-class gentleman. He is the Statue of Liberty archivist, which means what? What do you do? What is a, what is a, an archivist for the Statue of Liberty? I am a public historian who is in charge of records, so keeping track of lots and lots of paper, mostly files that relate to the history of this particular national park, the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. How does that come about? What did you do in school to get this? Well, interestingly, or maybe not so interestingly, I was an English teacher who had an interest in computers. And the written word and communication was very interesting to me. And I ended up falling in love with history in college and realizing that some of these things were related. How do we store information? How do we, uh, how do we describe information? All led me to appreciating and loving archival science and led me to a job as an archivist. Do you, have you ever cleaned a statue before? <laughs> you know, there's an incredibly large statue in my park that uh, requires cleaning from time to time. Where's yes, your park? You know? Where? Where? <laughs> it's in the middle of New York Harbor, and it's a very oh. large statue. It's hard to miss. <laughs> Listen, before we go into a thousand questions that I have, can you give some of the young kids who don't seem to know the history where the statue came from and what it is and what it's made of? Could you give us a little history of the background of oh, the statue? absolutely. Go, go, yes, go. Yes, I, I would love to and love doing so because a lot of people today are sort of confused. They will come up and they will say to me, why, why did France give us this giant statue here in the middle of New York Harbor? And the really short answer that I usually use for kids is that she was a birthday gift. She was a gift for the 100th birthday of the United States from one republic, the Republic of France, to another, the Republic of the United States. So the gift was supposed to be ready for 1876 for the, statue, for the 100th birthday of the United States, but it ended up being 10 years late, and in October of 1886, almost 137 years ago, she was dedicated in New York Harbor. 
Matthew, all of that is great and it's terrific, but why the statue? Why didn't they just send some perfume or something from France? I just don't understand why. We love it. It's thrilling. We, we, we worship it. But why a statue of liberty? Yes. Yes. Why a statue? Why not some other kind of gift? And, and this is where the desires of individuals and the desires of politicians and wealthy nation builders came together in this really fascinating moment. You had this sculptor named Auguste Bartholdi. He was French, and his dream was to build a colossal statue. He didn't particularly care that it was going to be a statue of liberty for the United States. In fact, he made a colossal statue for Egypt, and it was a large statue of a woman in robes holding a light. And if that doesn't sound familiar, uh, yeah, <laughs> he, was, yeah, yeah. he was annoyed later in life because people said, hey, didn't you ask Egypt for a statue that looked the same as this one? And he said, no, I didn't do that. Okay. But uh, he wanted to build a colossal statue. A lot of his friends happened to be liberal Republicans who cared about freedom and democracy. And they were Frenchmen who cared about it because at the time there was not a lot of freedom and democracy in France. So some of them thought, hey, if we give this gift to the United States, celebrating our friendship, celebrating the American Revolution and saying, hey, what a great job you all are doing with liberty and independence, this might also be a political message to people back home. So it was a giant statue because this sculptor really wanted to build a giant statue, and it was of the goddess of liberty with a tablet saying July 4th, 1776, so that it would be sold to Americans and that they could make it their own. Why green? Why green? Why, yeah, why green? Why when you open up your phone and you go to the emoji for the Statue of Liberty, no matter what phone you're on, she's definitely green, isn't she? The Statue of Liberty is green because she's made of copper, and when copper is outside, air and moisture combine to make a skin on the top of that copper that we call a patina. And that copper patina is green. At its thickest, it's actually almost a bright green. And at its beginning, it's kind of a dark green. So if you look at the Statue of Liberty, you'll notice she's not just one color of green. She's a lot of different shades of green. But yeah, this is her skin. It's her copper patina. And that is why the statue is green. Hey, a lot of this stuff doesn't usually come up in conversation. You un you understand that. Okay. So, how did they schlep it over here? We didn't have big boats at that at that time. How how did they get it here? Yes, we we did not yet have our our giant Titanic-like steamships, but we did have some older ships, and there was this particularly old ship that the French Navy had called the Isère. And they were able to put all of these different pieces of copper. And this is what really fascinates me. We didn't build the Statue of Liberty once. They built her twice. They had to put her together first in Paris and then a second time in the United States. So after they put her together in Paris, they took all the copper pieces down, all the iron insides down, and put them all in crates and shipped all of these crates and pieces across the Atlantic Ocean to New York City. So they, they schlepped her in, a, in the bottom of a ship. Listen, this is very interesting to me. I do not in any wise mean to be disrespectful. I love my country. I love my city. I love my statue. Why was it a lady? I mean, what impelled them to make it exactly the way they made it? I think if we're... If, if the question here is, you know, why in particular is it a statue of a woman? 
I think the answer yeah. to that is that a lot of a lot of sculptors, a lot of artists at the time who are living in the 19th century are very influenced by uh, classicism, by Greek and Roman culture. So when Bartholdi is making this model, he keeps calling it Libertas, which is the name of this Roman goddess of liberty, who traditionally was a woman who had a broken vase at her feet. So Bartholdi sort of updated this Roman goddess for the Americans, and he changed the broken vase at her feet to be broken shackles and chains that she's stepping out of. And rather than her holding a piece of that vase in her hand, she's now holding this tablet of law in her hand. So the short answer to why is it a woman, it's because she's a a goddess, and she's a goddess of liberty. Well, a goddess, I'm looking forward to the New York Post, where where I am also employed. Maybe they'll make a statue of me, too, but maybe a little shorter than that. So tell me about cleaning. Well, you've been doing really, I don't. How do you clean it? I think you, I think you deserve one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Leave your phone number. I may need to call you. <laughs> tell me. <laughs> tell me. How do you clean? How do you clean Miss Liberty? It's it, cleaning the statue has been a concern since the very beginning. In one respect, it's incredibly simple because of that patina that I told you about. That patina protects the copper, so that green skin protects the copper from corroding. But it doesn't change the fact that she is gigantic and she's outside. And the problem we've had from the very beginning with the Statue of Liberty is that water will get inside the statue. And when water gets inside the statue, it can stay still in certain places, and then that causes corrosion. So they painted the inside of the statue. They put coal tar on the inside of the statue. They've put putty on the inside of the statue. They've done all sorts of things over the years to try to get her to stop leaking. And when we went to clean her for her centennial in the 1980s, uh, the biggest problem we had with that cleaning was cleaning out all of that paint, cleaning all of that coal tar out, and the best solution and I know this sounds silly, the best solution they found after trying all these high-tech methods was to use baking soda and to blast baking soda on the inside of her skin to clean all of that paint and coal tar out, and that ended up being the best method. Um, They also power washed the outside of her then in the 1980s to clean some of that stuff that had come through her skin to the outside. But honestly, since then, we, we really don't have to give her a bath. She doesn't really require much uh, daily or monthly or even yearly cleaning. My thought of the Statue of Liberty leaking is not exactly what I ever thought when I looked at her. You don't think of the statue needing to go to the can or anything (laughs) like that. That's hardly what you think. So, oh, tell me, tell no, me. No, you don't. You don't think about that, and that's why one of the spots that they found water leaking, Cindy, was in her uh, in her nose, and so they ended up having to cut oh, these geez. two little holes in her nose. So she had a nose job. You telling she me the Statue of Liberty had a nose job? The Statue of Liberty had a nose job, like I, I did. Like Is that, that what yeah. you're telling? me? <laughs> well, I didn't know you did, but okay. That's a good one. How long does it take to clean her? 
Well, when when we cleaned her like that and we had to do the power washing, it, it took it took almost two two months to clean her. So it was a very long bath that she had for that restoration. What about lightning? I mean, she's way out there in the harbor. Does that cause any damage to the statue? Could it? So we're 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 fortunate enough that it 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 does not cause it does not cause damage that's readily visible right away. But if you do go on YouTube and you look at Statue of Liberty lightning strikes, you will see that yes, she does get hit by lightning uh, frequently. Her tallest point, which is her torch. And one thing we have realized is that the gold leafing that's around the torch, so the torch is actually solid copper covered in gold leaf. And that gold leaf that was put on in the 1980s um, has started to show some damage from being hit by lightning. And that's something that uh, we know we are going to have to address in the years to come. Because even though she does self-clean, uh, all of these things uh, require work over time. Well, to, I'm glad to, to hear them. that she self she self cleans. I certainly feel a lot better to know that she's a clean statue. I am grateful. <laughs> what about what about the people? Are they still able to go visit her all the way and walk up the steps or whatever? Yes, you are still able to come visit the Statue of Liberty and to go up the double spiral staircase that's inside her, and visitors are able to go up to the crown. Now, it's only only a couple hundred people a day that have a ticket. It's a re reservation to go to the crown of the Statue of Liberty, but that is still an option available to our visitors today. Yes, ma'am. So when the Statue of Liberty, I mean, seriously, I don't know all the history. When the Statue of Liberty was presented to the United States, was it supposed to be in our harbor as this great part of our our history was it supposed to be that famous it really it really wasn't it doesn't seem like it was going it some people didn't think it was going to be famous at all and for the first few years when people talk about the statue nobody calls her the statue of liberty they just refer to her as the bartoldi statue named after the sculptor it seems like it takes a while for her to be associated with New York City herself, and then eventually she becomes a personification of America. Um, it, it seems like it takes a while, but it does seem like maybe 20 years after she's opened by the early 1900s, New York City guidebooks are filled with references to the Statue of Liberty and about needing to go to see the Statue of Liberty and that being a big part of your visit. So it's definitely been over 100 years that she's been a top tourist attraction for people coming to New York City and certainly symbolizing New York and the United States. What is she holding? Isn't that a book? What is, what is that? Yes, she's holding two things. In her raised right arm, she is holding a torch, her, her official name, her proper French name, is La Liberté et Clorant le Monde, which means liberty enlightening the world. So she is carrying that light in her right hand. She's walking forward, and in her left hand, she's holding a tablet of law. So this is supposed to represent what, what is valuable to her, what matters to her, and it's the rule of law. Um, 
which is in this case symbolized by the Declaration of Independence. So on that tablet is the date July 4th, 1776 in Roman numerals. Matthew, you know all of this history and most of us do not. We treasure it, we love it, we understand it, we worship the Statue of Liberty, but when did it become the symbol of New York and the United States of America? When did all of that happen? I think it is a gradual process for the statue to become the symbol of the city and the nation, but I would tell you that I think it's really cemented in our culture during World War II, because it's during World War II that the Statue of Liberty is used as a fundraiser. And if we were living here in New York City during the war at the time, we would have gone through a number of Liberty loan bonds. They were doing radio programs yes, from the yes, Statue yes. of Liberty. Yeah, yeah. They, have a, they have a model of the Statue of Liberty in Times Square on VE Day. Uh, it seems like during World War II and then in the aftermath, this is when the statue really is locked in as personifying the United States. How long does it take to clean her? The last time we did a big cleaning, it took a couple months in the 1980s. But most of the cleaning that we do today is on the inside. And that kind of cleaning happens every day. You got to clean the handrails, you got to clean the steps, you got to clean the windows that people look out of in the crown. And, uh, you know, that can take uh, any, any number of minutes, depending on how dirty she is, I suppose. What what about maintaining it in every way? I mean, do people look at the outside? Do you, do you have specialists to see if there are cracks or something? I mean, it's such a fa famous part of our world. How does it get maintained even the outside? This is you're this concerns me so greatly what you're talking about which is you know you, you you do a massive repair job on something you do a big restoration project and you sort of you know clap your hands together and say okay we're done but no because 30 40 50 years later you have to do it again and so we've had two large restorations in the statue's history, one in the 1930s, one in the 1980s, and many of our brilliant um, managers who work here in the park, uh, many of whom are scientists, have determined uh, that she probably needs some work done again. So we currently have a few projects that we've been thinking about in the park as far as looking at her structural stability and you know, seeing does she need any major attention or care in the coming years. Because so far she's been doing great since that last restoration, but it's always a good idea to keep looking, especially when you have anything uh, as large and complicated as the Statue of Liberty is. Okay, a any question I'm going to ask about the Statue of Liberty makes me seem like an, an idiot, but I don't ha have an answer, so I have to ask these questions. The outside of the statue, what do you use on her, Brillo? What do you do to clean a gigantic statue? Well, the last time we cleaned the outside, Cindy, believe it or not, we actually used a pressure washer. Oh, Okay. And if you're thinking, of, yeah, a pressure washer like you use on your deck, yep, <laughs> a pressure washer like you would use on your deck uh, was used to clean the copper plates on the outside. And, of course, that's tricky. That's, it's difficult to clean the outside of her because you want to clean whatever on the copper skin, 
but you also don't want to clean off the patina, the green part. So there was a question over 100 years ago when the statues started to turn green because there were some people who were a little uh, confused, who didn't quite know that a large copper statue was going to turn green. So there are some really funny newspaper articles at the time where people were saying, should we give the Statue of Liberty a bath? Uh, should we <laughs> should we keep the patina? Should we clean it off? Should we let her stay this kind of uh, shiny copper color? Um, but my understanding is the last time we cleaned the outside of her, we used a regular old pressure washer. Listen, I don't want to keep you any longer because if it's starting to become as long as she is old. So I don't want to keep you on any longer. But I do thank you very much, Matthew, for coming on and talking to me. I would like to visit her again one day. May I call and could you organize? We we would love to have you. We have over 4 million visitors a year that come to Statue of Liberty National Monument and Ellis Island, and we would love if you would be one of them, Cindy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, honey. Thank you, Matthew Hush. Thank you very much. Bye. You're very welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Betsy Rosen, Betsy Rosen is in The Life of Pi. The Life of Pi is a Broadway show that works with puppets. And I'm going to ask her all kinds of questions that are fascinating to me. First of all, this is not like marionettes or hand, handheld puppets. What are these puppets like? They are life-size animals that typically take one, two, or three puppeteers to operate. And sometimes the puppeteers are inside of kind of like a framework, kind of the bones, the ribs of, let's say, the tiger, the Bengal tiger. And then two other puppeteers are outside. So it, it involves the whole body of the puppeteer some of the time. So you you are in the tiger, is that correct? That's right. I'm in a position called the heart. We have three positions of the tiger, the head puppeteer, the heart puppeteer, and the hind puppeteer. And I play this position of the heart most of the time where I am inside of the tiger and bent over like in a forward fold. And the spine of the tiger puppet lays across my spine of my back and I move the front paws as the tiger walks. How, what, how do you breathe? Or isn't, it in, aren't, isn't it an enclosure or it, you don't get enough air? How does it work if you're stuck inside the tiger's body? Well, I'm not, it's not like a costume necessarily where I'm zipped inside, but it's open. So the whole underbelly of the tiger is open, and you see my full human body most of the time from the audience. You can see the puppeteers were in full view. We're not trying to hide um, the puppeteers in this show. We want the audience to see how the magic is happening, how the puppeteers manipulate the puppets and how they come to life. So I can fully breathe. There's, you can see the top of my head sometimes through the front paws of the tiger. You can see my legs um, as I'm walking on the ground. So you can fully see me. How did you get into into puppetry? I mean, 
a simple person like me couldn't apply for a job as a puppeteer? You, how, do, how do you get to be a specialist? Well, for me in particular, lots of people in this show have come to it from different backgrounds. But for me in particular, I was lucky enough to grow up in uh, Reisterstown, Maryland, which is outside of Baltimore City. And um, there was a puppet company in my hometown called Open Space Arts. And I started taking acting classes and performing in puppetry, learning about puppetry, sewing costumes, building masks and building puppets when I was eight years old. And I loved it so much that I spent most of my childhood from eight to 18 at open space. So it's kind of been in my puppetry has been in my life almost my entire life. Okay. So how do you get into this show? How do you audition to be a tiger? Yes, that's a really good question. So, um, so Finn Caldwell, who is our puppetry and movement director uh, and has been with the show since it was conceived um, back in England, he came over to run auditions and we, he actually had a mock tiger puppet, so a very bare bones version of the tiger that you see in the show. And we got in it in that very first audition um, and we moved around and he had people kind of switch into the different positions and he watched us as we, you know, were in this puppet for the very first time. None of us had ever been in the tiger puppet before. Um, we also did some movement exercises and I think it's about uh, for this particular show, looking for not necessarily people who have puppetry experience, although I could say about half the puppeteers in our team of eight do have previous puppetry experience, but it's also about having a flexible personality, being able to deal with a lot of hard work to get these puppets to come to life in, to the level that we want them to. So you need to have like a, a kind of a flexible mentality, work well with others. There's a lot that goes into it aside from just the puppetry skill and okay. the physical. Did you did you ever fall out from inside the rib of the tiger? Did you ever flop down? I have. I have. So oh. actually, there, yeah. there was one performance where um, a lot of half of the show takes place on this lifeboat that Ty finds themselves stuck on in the middle of the ocean. And there's a bench kind of that goes across the middle of the lifeboat. And there's a very intense scene between the tiger and Ty, and the tiger is running around very quickly around this lifeboat, and my foot got caught on the bench, and I went down, and oh. I went down oh. hard in front of a full packed house. Um, but luckily, luckily, our stage manager couldn't even tell on the monitor watching backstage because my teammates, the head puppeteer and the hind puppeteer, did such a good job of keeping the tiger level above me that I was just sort of on the ground, splayed out, and the tiger was still above me. And so no one knew the wiser except for the three of us. Um, so I just very carefully, once I like did a quick body check of myself and made sure I was okay, which I was, I just very slowly just crawled back into my position under the tiger and we kept going. Um, does he does he roar? Does he ever roar? Oh yes, he does, and we make 
all of the sounds live, all of the puppets, the orangutan, the goat, the zebras, the tiger, all of the sounds that you'll hear when you come to see the show are made live by the puppeteers in that moment. How do you Lots make the doors. sound of a tiger? How do you, how do you make it, a, the sound of, of a tiger? Well, there's, I mean, we listen, we watch and listen to a lot of YouTube videos of animals. We went to the zoo and watched them and observed them. So we're trying to make them as authentic as possible. Um, but there's also different nuanced sounds. So there's sometimes this like purring sounds that they make that we try and make. There's, you know, big roars. There's like, there's like stalking kind of like low growling sound so it's, they have a whole vocabulary that we growl 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 for me growl can you growl okay. growl sure growl oh my lord <laughs> that's already a very good growl <laughs> and there's a team okay. of three of us so you imagine all three of us what about, you know, I'd be scared. I've, I've been on the uh, ASPCA board internationally for a lot of years. I would be, much as I love Broadway and I'm desperate to want to see this, I'd be too scared to see a, an animal even pretending to be wounded on stage. What about some people? Does it not harm or turn off some of the audience members? I think, yeah, I think there's... Um a level of it that that really does get to you. You feel it deep inside because although it is all puppetry, so, you know, um, no animal or human is actually injured in the show, um, you do see animals get injured and eaten and ripped apart. And um, ooh, that real, ooh, ooh, ooh. yeah, yeah. And that real, that's part of, the story, though, that Pi had to deal with, you know, on this boat is is this real life thing of what happens when when you're left with animals and and you're trying to survive, you know. So it is a story of survival, and we try and show that in as authentic a way as possible. Um, but we have had all ages, even kids as young as like four and five years old, come and see the show, and um, and. It, yeah, I think there are moments that are scary and terrifying and hard to watch. Um, that's also part of Pi's journey. So, How do you show blood if they're um, tearing another animal fabric. apart? Yeah, we use fabric mostly. Um, and so there's fabric strips um, that are used to represent guts um, and blood. And so that's that's what it is so if you see it in the show know that it's fabric um that is making that illusion all fabric okay i want to thank you because i am fascinated i'm too scared to to sit there and and see it but i'm fascinated by what you do and i thank you very much for coming on and talking with me thanks an oh, awful lot pleasure. betsy thank you so okay much. honey Thanks, Betsy. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I have a couple of memories that deal with stories of today. There is a story today 
about a Marine who killed the homeless subway rider, Jordan Neely. All of a sudden, Bernie Getz, remember that name? Bernie Getz infused himself into today's story, saying, this guy who did it has got to pay. Really? Okay. In 84, Getz shot teenagers on a train. I was with him right afterwards. He was acquitted. His lawyer was Barry Slotnick. What's a Bernie Getz like? We exist today in a wondrous world. I knew this Bernie. I actually went to his 14th Street apartment. He opened the door. He was accompanied by his live-in live chinchilla. Also, another story that's in the papers today. The New York Post this week reported how busy is the late Shah of Iran's exiled son, Crown Prince Reza Pahlavi. I knew him also. Long ago, repeatedly received by His Majesty the Shah in Sadabad Palace, we were friends, or as friendly as a Shah can be with a reporter. We knew each other over years. He had giant floor-to-ceiling doors in the palace. They were seemingly burnished in gold. They had servants on both sides. They opened magically in front or behind when you entered His Majesty's presence. They were huge. The Crown Prince was then a child. The Shah told me, for his birthday, we are going to let him open his own door. And this is the one who is suddenly being reported in the newspapers as such an important individual. Okay, one more thing and I'm out. Troubled with homelessness, migrants, druggies, and Biden's open borders, San Francisco is thinking to ask if Tony Bennett's okay enough to stop by and pick up the heart he left there in 1960. Listen, if not, my suggestion is they can give it to Kamala. She can always use it. And me, I am now leaving you, and thank you very much for listening. And please, try to tune me in again next Sunday. Maybe then I'll be better. Love you. Bye.